Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. It's Kimmy. On today's episode of A Little Wiser, I reached out to my friend Paris Salinas and recorded a phone conversation that I'm going to share with you now. When my producer Erica and I decided to start these mini episodes, we would reach out to really wise people to get their advice and ideas on all sorts of things that you, our audience, would find interesting. At this moment in time, with civil unrest, protests around the country, and a long overdue conversation about racism in America, we thought about calling in an expert on racism or Black history. But in the end, with the suggestion of my husband, Graham, he said, why don't you just call a friend who's Black and have a heart-to-heart conversation? So that is what I did. I called my friend Paris. We have known each other for over a decade, and we have never had a conversation about my whiteness or her experience as a mixed-race Black woman. Hi, Kimmy. (laughs) Hi, Paris. How are you? I'm good. I'm really, really hot. Uh, it's blazing in Los Angeles right now. So I'm in one of those old buildings that has no central air. So I'm like moving fans around and trying to stay as cool as possible. And I just am super cruel. You asked if your fan was going to cause an audio problem and I made you turn And you made me turn it off. It's fine. I'll just open the freezer. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for doing this. I'm so glad we're doing this. I'm so glad that you called me. I think that a lot of people, companies are complicating just a very, the simple art form and importance of conversation and dialogue during a time like this. And I think that when emotions get really high, people oftentimes feel the need to shout, which is necessary. But after we shout, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely important to come together and and look each other in the eye and start having real human conversations so that we can inform and uh, create change. So I was so happy that you called me to just start a conversation. <laughs> me too. And yeah, for us to have this conversation, to be able to share it means a lot to me personally and certainly at, at this moment. Yeah. So we, how long have we known each other? Is it like 10 plus years? Oh, more than that. I mean, I knew you before I had my daughter and she's almost 13. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, so like 14 a long or time. Okay. Yeah. Long time. I'm going to give <laughs> like a first date, my description, and you can um, tell me if you had a different experience. Okay. I love that. That's my favorite game. <laughs> so we met through work. We're both working in television and film. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are certainly people in my life where you meet and you you just innately have a connection, probably when you can't even explain other than I get her or I like her. So 
It's kind of been this, just a really neat friendship that neither of us have let go because all those years ago, we we both connected. But if you're like, no, I totally thought you were lame and dorky. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, not at all. I think that that happens, you know, when you work in production and, and film and television, you know, you, you run across those people that you just have that shorthand with. And I think when you have affinity for people in that way, they just, they stay in your lives. So I, I'm, I'm so grateful that you stayed in mine. So my hope is that I can ask you some things that are going to be informative and helpful to me and to anyone who's listening. And in that vein, I reached out to listeners and friends saying, you know, what questions are you interested in hearing the answers to? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a sense of like almost awkwardness, mm-hmm. like these questions are hard or this is hard to talk about or wouldn't, gosh, that would be uncomfortable to ask. And where I stand is that not just in this conversation, but in life, other important conversations, that the hard questions are the best questions and the ones we need the answer to. So we're here to talk about race and racism in this country and where we stand at this moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I am curious about your personal story. Mm -hmm. At what age did you become aware of race and how? Well, I I come from mixed heritage. So my mom is Mexican and Czechoslovakian and my dad is black of African descent. So I was very aware at a young age that my mom and I looked different physically. And it became very apparent to me, I think, when I first started going to school and kids would say, you know, oh, that's your mom. You look nothing like your mom. Or how is that your mom? And, you know, my mom's side of the family, you know, my uncles look, present Caucasian, you know, you would never know that they were Mexican and and Czechoslovakian. And so, you know, just being with family and being the only brown face, I think was something that I was very aware of from a very early age. I think in terms of racism, My dad went to play for the Indianapolis Colts. My dad played football, was with the 49ers for a long time, and then went to play for the Indianapolis Colts. And it was the first time I visited him in Indianapolis that I I think I was six. And a kid that I had been playing with next door went to go knock on someone else's door so that they could play with us. And he stepped outside, saw me and said, oh no, I, I can't come just very matter of factly. And he said, well, why not? And he said, oh, cause my dad says I can't play with niggers. And it wasn't, you know, he didn't say it in a hateful way. You could tell that it was just something that almost like my dad said, I can't play in the street. And I had never heard that word, but I knew that he was talking about me and it was, it was polarizing. You know, it, it, I think coming from the experience of already feeling so different from the family that I lived with, looking so different and constantly having to prove to people that my mom was in fact my mom, even though she was uh, olive tone skin and I was brown. You know, I, I felt that difference and for a long time thought that that difference was bad. And I think when you're young, you just want to fit in and you just want to be the same, it's certainly with your family. So it's something, you know, Physically, I think that I was very aware of very early. Was there a disparity between your parents are separated Mm -hmm. and your mom has olive light skin and you have brown skin? Mm -hmm. 
when you go to see your dad, your dad is black. So I imagine people make the connection as opposed to questioning your mother being your mother. Yeah. Never any question that that was my dad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested in being in those two opposite worlds, the, the difference in those experiences and being in a world where you look different than everyone else, how people treated your mom versus your dad and how they treated you differently when you were together. Yeah. And I want to be very clear. I I never felt any, my family never made me feel that way. It was always just the looks from other people that couldn't understand why, you know, I was walking around. I used to spend summers with my uncles in Michigan and, you know, one of my uncles lived in Lansing, which is, you know, a suburb and very progressive. And my other uncle lived like out in the country in Michigan where, you know, people flew Confederate flags and we even saw like a KKK march walking through town once. So, you know, that it was only when other people would look at us with question marks over their foreheads (laughs) that you kind of said, oh, wow, you know, there must be something, they must not think I belong, or they must be trying to figure out, you know, what this white man is doing with this black child. And I think I also have to, you know, realize too, that I'm doing a lot of revisiting just in general of feelings that I had as a child that I could only process with the comprehension level of a child. So I also recognize and acknowledge that a lot of times it was people, you know, looking with question marks, but I was a really cute kid. Maybe they were just looking at me because I was really cute, you know? You're super cute. You're still super cute. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I was such a cute kid, Kimmy. But, um, you know, I, I think that once once you feel the weight of the stare that isn't done with love or affinity or good intention, you you constantly just the fact that you have to question whether or not someone is looking at you because they think you're pretty, or if they're looking at you because they have feelings of hatred towards you or the color of your skin. And that is something that I think growing up I always had to navigate because I was in predominantly white schools and just constantly having to go in that, you know, circular kind of thought process can, can make you a little bit crazy sometimes, you know? What about as you became a young adult woman, brown skinned in the world? I mean, do you have stories or moments that stick out to you where you experienced racism in a very vivid, real way? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think that what's happening right now, which is is making a lot of people uncomfortable, but it's that good discomfort because it means you're growing, is to address that gray area and to let people know that you don't have to be wearing a KKK robe to participate in racism and or to do something racist or, or to, you know, I think people use the word racist and say you're a racist and, and the only image that comes to mind is something very extreme. So if they're not that, they say, I'm, there's no way I could be and I, I just, I won't even begin to explore the ways in which I could be racist or, or performing in a racist way. But that being said, to answer your question, to be honest, there's, there's not a day that goes by that I don't experience racism, truly. I'm so glad you reshaped that question because there is that distinction, right? From the dramatic moment where you tell the story of the boy opening the door and saying, I can't play with you because you're a nigger that makes my jaw Mm -hmm. drop. But this is shaping a conversation about the daily subtle ways in which the fabric of our country 
exudes racism. And that's a, that's yeah. where I think you, the reckoning is, the hard questioning of what role do I play in that, which is really uncomfortable. I know for me, and I would imagine for most people. So what are the subtleties of racism? Oh, gosh, there's so many. <laughs> you know, I think that something as simple as, you know, I have curly hair and sometimes I wear my hair out curly, sometimes I wear it straight. Just like the simple you know, when I wear my hair straight, oh my gosh, your hair looks so beautiful straight. And sure it does, but there's, there's also, you know, somebody that never compliments your hair curly or thinks that it's prettier because it's straight or prettier when it's not in its natural state is a form of racism to be incredibly honest, like, or people that want to touch my hair being down to like the, the customer service that I receive or don't receive in a store when I go in. I'm always incredibly aware of that because I worked retail during high school for so long and knowing that you are supposed to, you know, beat feet to beat every customer at the door and say hello and ask if you can help them with something. And, you know, seeing someone who doesn't and you automatically say, oh, well, maybe that's just not a good salesperson. But then, you know, a white person walks in behind me and they're quick to help, quick to say hello, quick to ask if there's anything that they need. Being back in a school environment with my kids, luckily my son is at a, an incredibly diverse beautiful language immersion preschool here in Midtown. But, um, you know, sending my daughter to elementary schools, I, I moved her twice because of racism. When she was in the first grade, her choir leader chose to have the children sing Pick a Bale of Cotton as their winter performance song. And not only her song selection being incredibly insensitive and appropriate and racist, but the fact that every single parent that was in the audience at that time wasn't incensed by that song selection, you know, made me feel like I was in an environment with people that weren't thinking the same way that I was. You have a four-year-old boy who we heard in the background and a 13-year-old <laughs> daughter. Yes. What are the conversations you have with them about race and racism? What's the message, the thing that matters most to you that they know about the realities of it and how they can show up in those moments? I think I have the most conversations with my daughter and it's very much focused on her, number one, being incredibly proud of who she is, who her family is, who her ancestors are, and what that means to show up in this world as a Black woman. But a lot of the conversations that I've had with her, just as she's getting older, as school is getting harder, you know, having to have the conversations with her that it's not just enough to be mediocre and to be a B student in this world, and certainly not in this country, when you're a Black woman. And how much more important it is for her to apply herself and be smarter and sharper and the best of the best because people will look at her and think that she's not smart just because she's black. I remember when I was in college, you know, people thinking that, you know, all the black kids were there just because of affirmative action. And I got an academic scholarship. You're raising a black daughter. I'm yep. raising two white daughters. You just shared the conversations happening in your home. What are the conversations that you believe white families should be having in their own homes? And what are the things that you wish her peers knew and were being educated about? 
You know, one of the things that I think is really fascinating to watch, I, I grew up at a time when, you know, there was a lot of erased racism. You know, there's only one race, the human race, and people wanted to erase the color lines, you know, in the 90s. That was a big thing. Teaching children that you can't see race, I think, is doing them a disservice because you can. That's like telling someone that the sky isn't blue you know, that we have differences. I think it's important to celebrate those differences and recognize that those differences don't have to divide us. We can celebrate those differences. Just like your friends, one friend may have blonde hair and one friend may have green eyes and another friend might have brown skin. And, you know, it makes us different. And that brown skin means that her family came from different parts of the country and the world and teaching children to be global citizens. Isn't that, that's what makes up this great country, I think is so incredibly important. And, you know, I think Ashton Kutcher on his Instagram just shared a really, really beautiful explanation about, you know, the difference between like Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. And I guess he and his wife, Mila, were reading their kids a story and they said, you know, their girl gets to pick the story first and their son got really upset. And he said, but no, I, I want to go first. Why do girls get to go first? And he says, because girls get to go first. And he says, but why boys, boys should go first too. And he said, well, listen, in some houses, girls don't get to go at all. So for us, girls go first. And I think that in teaching kids that there are bad people in the world and there are people that judge others on the color of their skin. And those people are wrong, not trying to hide them from it. Just like I can't hide racism from my kids. You shouldn't hide racism from yours. I have to talk to my kids about racism because I know that my children will experience that. And when they experience that, I want them to be equipped with the tools to battle it head on. And you should feel no differently about your kids because in the, in the world that we live in, inevitably every child is going to encounter racism. It might not be directed toward them, but they will be a witness to it and making sure that they're equipped with the tools that when somebody says, you know, something negative about a black person, that they're equipped to say you're wrong and making sure that they know that it exists and and having the toolkit to be able to battle it head on, just like my kids have to. All of a sudden, myself included, White people are very publicly engaging in a conversation about racial inequality. Mm-hmm. And there's social media posts, and there's Blackout Tuesday challenges, and all of a sudden, this very engaged white population in an issue that, you know, is 400 years deep. How would you say, in your experience, you as a Black woman or the Black community is experiencing that? Yeah, I think that, and I I read a really interesting article on Medium about performative allyship and showing up or thinking that you're showing up in solidarity by, you know, I see it like, I think the most recent one I saw was like these influencers that are painting themselves black or brown, thinking that in that, in some way that's showing solidarity. 
And that's not the right thing to do <laughs> very clearly. Um, but I think, you know, again, like these social media blackout Tuesdays, if you feel like you need to affirm solidarity with words, absolutely. I think that everyone should be able to do so. But words without action are empty and words without action, social media posts without action then fall into that space of performative allyship where you just kind of appear to be in solidarity and that's it, but aren't really doing anything to educate yourself or to create some kind of change within your own behavior, within your own patterns, you know, whether that be recognizing that, you know, there are certain companies that contribute to racist groups and really doing the work to distance yourself in every way, shape or form, not only educate yourself on these issues, but do the work to detach from some of that convenience that unfortunately being comfortable and and having privilege affords you. I remember when I found out a lot of the really hateful, homophobic things that the, I guess, founder of Chick-fil-A was saying and, and how he was speaking out against gay marriage and, you know, saying some really, really terrible things about the LGBTQ community and, you know, Chick-fil-A is delicious. But it was very clear to me that I could no longer support that and having to explain to my kids, like, we don't eat there anymore because the person who profits from these sales is a person who says hateful things that we don't agree with. And I recognize the the cliche of being a Black person in a racist conversation talking about chicken right now. I just want to say that. <laughs> um, you know, it just it, it's an example of, you know, how do you show up? How do you show solidarity? Thank you, because that is so clear and beautifully put. And when you talk about white privilege and change happening as a result of giving up our privilege, which I agree with wholeheartedly. What are examples of that? What are the other ways that you believe would be meaningful and impactful when it comes to letting go and intentionally giving up of your privilege? You know, I think the first step, obviously, is just inform and educate yourself, right? Because on my podcast, we have a lot of listeners who ask how to be good allies. And one of the first things I say is you're allowed to be in a lot of spaces where people will say things in front of you that they won't say in front of me. And what do you do when those things are said when no one else is around, when there isn't a black person around, when it is just a room full of white people and someone makes a racist joke or someone says something that could be deemed offensive or just acts out in that way? Do you stand up? Do you correct them? Do you tell them why they're wrong? Or do you just say, oh, like that guy's just an asshole and move on? And so I think it it really is about the statements that you're making when no one else is watching, because some of the most racist rooms with some of the most (laughs) offensive language happens in a room full of white people, not where black people are, because, you know, a lot of people are afraid to, to say it and be overtly racist. And so exercising your right as an ally, as a human being to stand up for black and brown and other people of color when there's only white faces in the room and to be able to educate so that you can combat that ignorance with education and information so that anyone in that room who is unsure what side of the fence they should be falling on once you make your statement, you set them straight and they know where to stand. There's a great, 
I'll have to pull it up, and I may not include this. There's a Maya Angelou story that Oprah told about the power of Maya and that she was hosting a party in North Carolina and across the room heard a man say something that was essentially racist Mm -hmm. and went and stopped the record and the music, walked to the coat closet, got his coat, handed him, and the whole party stopped. And she said, I heard what you said. You may now leave my home Mm. and went back and put the music back on. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, oh, like just that moment and the power and the courage to, because I do think people in social situations are offended yet don't call it out, don't address it. You know, they get in the car and say, God, you know, what a douchebag. We're not clearly, you know, not hanging out with them, but not addressing it. What is the right way to open up a conversation? Somebody who's of a different race, who's a colleague, who's a friend who says, I mean, what what do you think is the right way to engage around the conversation? You know, I think that these are conversations that like the doors are already open. And, and while they might feel uncomfortable or seem awkward, like coming from a place of honesty and good intention, I don't think it can ever be, you know, you might get reprimanded or you, you might get corrected. Let me, let me rephrase that. You might get corrected. You might use the wrong language, but you have to start somewhere, you know? And at some point you have to understand that this essentially being black in America is like having constant post-traumatic stress disorder. And so you don't have to avoid the conversation, but be upfront and be clear with your intention from the jump and be ready to learn. And, And that might come with some bumps and some scrapes and some feeling uncomfortable or feeling like, you know, embarrassed for not knowing, but you'll only feel embarrassed for not knowing something once. Because once you learn it, you know it. And you can put it into practice. And I certainly would rather be and feel embarrassed and ask the questions than to fail the test. Yeah, be clear on your intention and be ready to be accountable and to learn, really. And I think there's a way, you know, tell me what I can do is not helpful. I think tell me what I can read if you could give me some things that you think might help me understand resources, give me resources. Don't give me the answer to the test. Give me the book to study so that I can ace the test. It's like, you know, you have to adapt and understand that you have to be multilingual in terms of culture here not just language. You have to be able to exist and navigate and understand the experiences of the people that you share this country with, the people that live next door to you, the people that you see every day at work. You have to know and understand where they're coming from, what their history has been, what their existence means in this country, so that you know how to not be insensitive and that you can actually invoke some kind of change. What do you wish people knew about the beauty of Black culture and these neighborhoods and schools and companies where we live in our silos and don't understand one another? Is there something that you wish people knew? No, because I don't believe that anyone doesn't know the beauty of it. I mean, it's 
mainstream culture and, and almost absolutely everything about every genre of music has been influenced by black culture of, of black music. And, you know, from rock and roll to jazz to punk and ska, you know? So I, I don't in any way, shape or form think that there is any lack of understanding of how beautiful and wonderful the culture is. I don't think there's a lack of admiration or awareness of its beauty whatsoever. I think that people just need to educate themselves on where it comes from, why it is so beautiful. It's influences on absolutely everything, every country in this world. This is in the flow of our conversation out of context, but when I ask people for questions, several people had this question and they were afraid to ask it. Mm -hmm. They said basically that they get worried about language Mm -hmm. specific to race and being Black in America. Mm -hmm. And they said, should I say Black, African-American, Black American? I think honestly, personally, I think the safest thing to say is Black because if you say someone is African-American and their family is from Trinidad, or, you know, their family could be from Central America. <laughs> you know, I think that for a long time, Black was a word that so many people pushed against. And I think that that's over now. And I think it, it is the root cause of why so many people are afraid to say Black Lives Matter, because the word Black has been associated as something bad for so long. Even at one point, you know, Black people pushing against it, saying, don't call me Black, I'm African-American, or I'm this, or I'm that. Are you hopeful? I am. I am. I think that 2020 has been a cataclysmic year. (laughs) Things that happened this year that I don't think anyone ever thought possible. You know, my generation is really leading with a voice that is so informed and with a younger generation of people that are so ready for change, that are so ready to challenge those things that we say are normal, those things that we say we should do or how we should be. It's no longer about having a seat at the table or being invited to have a seat at the table. It's time to destroy those tables and and use the wood to build a new table or a bunch of tables. It's about breaking down these systems and really evaluating why they were here in the first place. They're so connected to antiquated viewpoints that are centuries old that no longer apply. I'm incredibly optimistic that, that my kids will live in a world that they are even more proud of than I am today. Paris, thank you for being my friend. Thank you for educating me and educating everyone who's listening. And your voice extends so far beyond this podcast. So I do want you to share where other people can find you on your podcast, can follow you on social media. Absolutely. Um, I have a podcast that I'm so proud of called Can We Kick It? It's available on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your favorite podcast. We're there hosted with another beautiful human being who is my dear friend, CJ. And we talk about everything from, you know, pop culture to politics to just being young, black and gifted in America. And um, it's a lot of fun. So we, it's it's not always heavy, but it's it's the right amount of weight that you need. 
So that's on, on social media. And, and, you know, my, I'm on Facebook. It's just Paracelinus. I recently got off Instagram because it became more important for me to be heard rather than seen. And I felt like I was just doing a lot of watching and, and being seen on Instagram as opposed to being heard and understood. So I participate a lot more on Facebook. And then on Twitter, I'm Perry Sally, P-A-R-E-S-A-L-I. Great. And we will share all of that in the notes and in our newsletter. And I love you, Paris. I'm oh, I love you. So grateful that you're still in my life. And I hope we continue to have just real meaningful conversations like the one we just had. I know that we will. And thank you for this. Okay. Thanks, Kimmy. Thanks again to Paris and to you for making the time to listen. As we all well know, it has been nothing short of a wild ride these past few months. As we've launched these mini episodes and delved into these new, unexpected, and important issues, we are so grateful that you continue to show up as part of a community we have grown to love. This episode of A Little Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Take care of yourself and check out the show notes and our newsletter for links on everything we discussed today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.